The Brian McClanahan Show, episode 180. Are you ready to think locally and act locally? Welcome to The Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to The Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter, at Brian McClanahan. Like my Facebook page, at Brian McClanahan. And, of course, subscribe to my YouTube page, at Brian McClanahan. Also, go to my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's Brian with an O. And give me an email address, and I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, and a free audiobook read by yours truly. While you're there, you can also go to brianmcclanahan.com forward slash support. You can throw a few pennies my way, help keep the lights on, help keep the podcast going. Anything is appreciated. And you can also support The Brian McClanahan Show by going to mclanahanacademy.com, picking up one of my courses there. The newest one is American Constitutions. It is a fantastic 40-lecture course on all aspects of American Constitutions. You're going to want to pick this up. I've also got a great course on the war, which is the topic of this podcast today. And I've got one on secession, the Declaration, and Alexander Hamilton. Great classes for you. They make great gifts. Christmas is coming up. You got a lot of things to a lot of people to purchase for, I'm sure, even for yourself. So pick up on a McClanahan Academy course. You won't be disappointed. You can download the lectures. Of course, you can comment. I'll comment back on it. It's a great way to uh, ask me questions uh, better than an email. So uh, I do respond to the comments on those particular courses. And also, don't forget that if you do like this podcast, please rate it on iTunes. The better ratings, the more ratings, the better. It moves up the list. And, of course, more people will see it. And if you also like it, share it around on social media. Let your friends know you like The Brian McClanahan Show, and uh, we can help spread the word that way. All right. Well, the podcast for the day, as I said, is about um, the war. And it's not necessarily about the war directly. And, in fact, it's, it's about reconciliation. And this is going to be a major theme of the McClanahan Academy class I'm working on now that will be released next year, 2019. Um but this theme of reconciliation is one that is often missed. And in fact, what you're seeing now in the modern historical profession is a substantial attack on reconciliation. In fact, reconciliation has become a bad word. You see, what has happened is that the both on the left and the right, this is the profession in general, even quote-unquote conservative historians, people like Forrest Neighbors, um, Forrest Neighbors, who's uh, he's a conservative. I mean, he, he says he's a conservative, and he, he wrote a book on uh, uh, Reconstruction and essentially saying that the South needed the North to show it how to be Republican. And, I, and I've talked about this on a podcast already. Um, but not just that. Uh, you have people on the left, people like David Blight, whose race and reunion has become the standard book now for the view of the post-bellum period, the memory studies, which again is just history. But uh, the point is, we have a situation where both left and right are saying that reconciliation was actually a bad idea. The Southerners should not have been reconciled. They should have been punished, essentially. They should have been shown that what they were were oligarchs, anti-democratic, anti-liberty, they should have been shown all these things and that uh, Northerners, in their rush to put the Union back together again, made a mistake. That the radical Republicans were actually correct the entire time. That the South, white Southerners in particular, should have been exterminated in a way. I mean, this is essentially what Benjamin Wade said, that he was wanting to uh, exterminate white Southerners. Uh, and so that's the, that's the 
the ideological disposition of many people now in the historical profession. They don't come out and say this, but this is essentially what they want. They want a situation, they wanted a situation where the South was thoroughly cleansed of anything that would have been reminiscent of the old South, of the past, of the antebellum South. And so this is the charge that you have that these monuments that have been put up across the South are dedicated to white supremacy, that somehow they are reflective of a people that are the only people, now this is the impression you get, the only people in America that were racist at any time in American history. The South has to be the uh, awful, the evil other in America. It has to be the demon because you have to have a noble side and an evil side to make this narrative work. You've got to have the righteous cause myth, which is that the North was fighting for some glorious cause of freedom for everybody, which um, you could make a case that, of course, emancipation was a war aim after 1863. I know that the people like the James Oakes subscribers would say, no, this is a war aim as early as 1861, but they have to have a tortured logic to get there by suggesting the confiscation acts and other things were, were intended solely to be for ultimate emancipation. Now, people talked about the fact that if the war came, there, that probably would happen um, if the South lost. Uh, but certainly, that was not a war aim. Lincoln made it clear that that was not a war aim. And even up until January of 1865, he was willing to put off emancipation as, a, as a, the ultimate objective of the war until the 1890s if the South would just come back in the Union. So ultimately, slavery would have been a, a, a abolished. And I think Southerners, many Southerners, recognize that that could be the potential case of anyway, and particularly if you're looking in the Upper South. Now, the Lower South, maybe not. I mean, who knows how long slavery would have existed had the South uh, won the war. Um, it could have existed for another 50, 60, 70, 80 years, 100 years. Nobody knows because it was never allowed to progress uh, in its own way, and, and, and Southern emancipation efforts were never allowed to progress either. Um, so who knows what would have happened? Uh, ultimately, slavery was was abolished, and that's the uh, positive effect of the war. Uh, and no one would deny that. Uh, we don't know, though, it's all historical inference how these things would have worked out uh, had the South either been allowed, the, the Deep South in particular, been allowed to secede in peace, uh, or had the South won the war. I mean, again, one of the common uh, retorts that's used by people when you say, you know, the war was about... Uh, uh, states' rights, or whatever case, whatever, well, I mean, people would say, okay, yeah, I mean, the, the war, uh, the South seceded, so the war came, right? So that the war, the argument that somehow uh, secession caused the war, um, secession didn't cause any war. The Lincoln administration caused the war. Secession didn't have to be a violent activity. There could have been peaceful secession, and had Lincoln allowed the Deep South to secede, you still had slave states in the North. Virginia, North Carolina, Tennessee had all rejected secession. So you would you would only had seven states out of the Union. Secession could have happened without any war, without any bloodshed. And who knows what would happen from there? Um, so this is, these the statements that are made are often uh, made without any thought whatsoever. Well, I mean, because the... the in their mind, the logical thing is that, well, secession has to cause war. Does it? Does secession have to cause war? We know it doesn't because we've seen it happen in other parts of the world and it didn't cause any war. So 
that's an entirely different topic. I get into all these arguments in that class that I offer at McClanahan Academy on the war. Um, it is a 25-lecture course on the war, college-level course on the war. So you'd want to pick that up um, if you haven't already. Uh, but I want to talk about this reconciliation period again and look at these monuments because you see that across the South, uh, these monuments are being attacked, whether they're being torn down violently like in North Carolina with Silent Sam or there's efforts to remove them in the middle of the night like in New Orleans um, and tear them down, rename uh, Lee Square, uh, Breeze Square. I mean, these these ridiculous, idiotic things that are going on uh, across, the, across the South. But most people don't realize that Confederate, and, and some people do. Now, if you go to like the SPLC website where they have uh, the listing of all these monuments across the United States, you'll find that you'll see some in the North. But those particular monuments, and there's one in particular I want to talk about today, are interesting, particularly the one in Chicago. Now, if you go to the SPL website, SPLC website, you will not see this uh, a marker for this particular monument in Chicago. Now, people in Chicago know it's there. In fact, in April of this year, there was a little stink made about removing this monument from Chicago. That went nowhere. Um, it went nowhere because it would be the most idiotic thing to do ever. And because you cannot ascribe the uh, attacks on this monument that other people level on Southern monuments. You know, the one at the Silent Sam Monument, for example, there's a speech that was made at the dedication of the ceremony that had some racial overtones to it. And, uh, in fact, blatantly racial overtones. And so people would say, well, there it is. That, that proves that that monument was put up for white supremacy. It doesn't prove anything. It doesn't prove the monument was put up for white supremacy. It shows that the guy that was making the speech was a racist, which, frankly, most Americans were in the late 19th and early 20th century. That's not news. Uh, I mean, this, this was the case across the United States and the case before the war. As even C. Van Woodward has pointed out in his strange career of Jim Crow, North, the North had no room to lecture the South on race relations when it invented Jim Crow. You can go back and look, and if you do a search in uh, antebellum newspapers, you'll find that the term Jim Crow was actually used in the North before the war uh, for segregated rail cars and other things. Um, so th the North has no room to lecture the South. Um, but regardless... Uh, this monument in Chicago, I think, is the best example of what these monuments were erected for, north and south. Because in it, you see the real spirit of reconciliation. Now, this monument was dedicated in 1895, so right at the height of, quote-unquote, Jim Crow. right? But here in Chicago, it's an Oakwood Cemetery in Chicago. It's dedicated to the 6,000 men who died at Camp Douglas, Illinois, in Chicago during the war. And Camp Douglas was called 80 Acres of Hell. It was an awful place. Uh, disease was rampant. The, the, the camp was designed not to hold um, maybe a 1,000 men. It had many times more of that. In fact, it was willful mistreatment of prisoners. People were tortured there. People were starved to death on purpose. People were not provided, uh, Confederate soldiers were not provided uh, winter clothes, jackets, blankets, and you're talking about sub-zero conditions. So men froze to death. At one point when they raised the barracks because men were trying to tunnel out and escape, uh, of course it unleashed all the rats and they had the great rat feast. So men are eating rat because they had nothing else to eat. 
this is the situation that these Confederate prisoners were confronted with. Uh, there were actually observation towers erected for the citizens of Chicago to come and watch the Confederate soldiers like a zoo. Um, this was just downright awful. And of course, martial law was declared in Chicago at one point. Uh, and so citizens were arrested and put in Camp Douglas. Anyone who had, quote-unquote, Southern sympathy, and what Southern sympathy constituted was people that were sympathetic with Confederate soldiers and wanted to help them out, provide uh, clothing or food for these men out of, hum- out of humane concern. It also, this also happened at Camp, uh, uh, sorry, Fort Delaware. Not that people were put in prison there uh, for, for helping, but there were actually efforts to try to provide food and other things for these men, denied by the, uh, by the Union government. Because they said that, and of course, men were being, uh, you know, at Fort Delaware were being forced to drink mosquito-infested water and other things. I mean, just awful stuff. So these Union prison camps were just terrible places. And so 6,000 men that we know of died at Camp Douglas. It was actually more than that because at one point the Union stopped even counting deaths at Camp Douglas. And many of these men were just washed out into uh, Lake Michigan. So... Um, this is just an awful situation. And so 6,000 men died. And so in 1895, Northern Capital, Northerners, decided that they were going to build a monument to these Confederate dead. There's actually a burial mound there. This is a mass grave of Confederate soldiers. And they decided they were going to build Northern Capital. Uh, people like, um, uh, well, there were, there were industry uh, tycoons there. The Armour family, I believe, were involved in uh, helping build this uh, this uh, monument, um, the Pullman family were involved in uh, building this monument. Uh, you know, sleeping uh, luxury for the middle class, the Pullman sleeping car. So, uh, I mean, these these were prominent individuals in the North. In the North, now, I mean, not just these were not Southerners that were building this monument. And so, the uh, the dedication ceremony is the interesting part of the monument. So you have this monument built; it's still there. And in fact, as I said, some people want to take this thing down because it's an Oakwood Cemetery in Chicago. It's still there. There are actually four cannon put around it. Um, and the dedication ceremony is interesting because of what happened. 100,000 people attended this ceremony. 100,000 people from Chicago attended this ceremony. Not from the South, but from Chicago. In fact, not only did 100,000 people from Chicago attend this ceremony, Grover Cleveland was there. Now, he wasn't there... Uh, purposely for that particular uh, ceremony. He was actually there because one of his cabinet members died. And so Cleveland was on a train, but he, drove, he, he rode through Chicago and stopped for the, uh, for the episode. And his cabinet was there. In fact, um, there was a, a man who, was, um, who Cleveland attempted to have appointed as minister to Liberia, an African-American. He was there at the ceremony, attending the entire thing, um, and you know, was part of it. Um, so this is a very interesting situation, and it was days, days of dinners, uh, celebrations, uh, and at every one of these toasts, at every one of these things, you had Confederate soldiers there, and, and former Confederate soldiers, and Union soldiers, and they toasted each other, and they made speeches about how grand it was to be back in the Union together. It was the fullest expression of reconciliation. I think you cannot find a dedication ceremony anywhere in the United States that was anything like this. And again, the date is important. 1895, right at the heart of all these monuments are going up, supposedly for Jim Crow, and yet here you have one in Chicago. 
Um, that's not going up for Jim Crow. It's going up at the same time these other monuments are going up, and it's going up for the same reasons the Southern monuments were going up. And I'm going to read, actually, a bit of the speeches that were made. I'm going to read a good portion of the dedication, the, the uh, dedication oratory from uh, Wade Hampton. Now, if you don't know who Wade Hampton was, Wade Hampton uh, was a Confederate general, uh, was governor of South Carolina, um, was is in some areas vilified for his actions during Reconstruction. He had his Wade Hampton's red shirts, which many people would say were just like the Ku Klux Klan. That's stretching it a little bit, but um, certainly they were a paramilitary organization dedicated to ending Reconstruction in the South. Um, and Hampton was the most wealthy man in South Carolina in, in the, at one point, and in all of his properties but one were burned by the Union Army as they marched through South Carolina. So the man uh, suffered because of the war, um, without question. But of course, later on, he became a very prominent politician in South Carolina and was a highly sought-after speaker uh, for a variety of reasons, North and South. And so he's going to give this address and I, I'm, I want you to listen to the words of this particular address because I want you to find the seething white supremacy hatred for people here in this particular address. I want you to find it. Now, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but, but granted, you can go out. This thing is available for free. Uh, you can find it. Um, and even the parts that I don't read, you won't find anything that I just said. Uh, you won't find any anything that's saying that uh, these monuments are being erected for anything other than for a monument to dead Confederate soldiers. And that was the case north and south. So let me read this monument. He begins by saying, The scene presented here today is one that could not be witnessed in any country but our own. And for this reason, if for no other, it possesses a significance worthy of the gravest consideration. A few years ago, brave men, from the north and from the south, stood facing each other in hostile array, and the best blood of the country was poured out like water on many a battlefield. Thousands, hundreds of thousands of our bravest sleep in bloody graves, men who gave their lives to prove the faith of their convictions, and now, north and south, standing by these graves wherever they may be, grasp hands across the bloody chasm and proudly claim federal and confederate soldiers as Americans, men who have given to the world as noble examples of courage and devotion to duty as can be enrolled on the page of history. Think about what he just said there. Grasp hands across the bloody chasm and proudly claim federal and confederate soldiers as Americans. That's not something you hear from the anti-reconciliationist crowd. These people aren't Americans. They're traitors. Uh, Donald Trump makes a statement that Robert E. Lee was a great general. No, no, no. He's a traitor. He's not an American. He's a traitor. Here you have Wade Hampton saying, no, these are Americans, all of them, north and south. We're not going to say northerners weren't Americans. You can't say southerners weren't Americans. And I'm going to get into what a northerner said about this too. Followed up Wade Hampton. Okay, so it's not just Wade Hampton. He continues, Nor is this all that marks the, this occasion as exceptional and remarkable, and which should render it memorable in our annals for all time to come. No monument in the world has such an honorable history as attaches to yonder one, the one in Chicago. That marks the graves of no victorious soldiers, but of the followers of a lost cause. It stands not on southern soil, but on northern 
The men who rest under its shadow come from our far-off south land, and it owes its erection not to the comrades of these dead soldiers, but mainly to the generosity and magnanimity of their former foes, the citizens of this great city. All honor, then, to the brave and liberal men of Chicago, who have shown by their action that they regard the war as over, and that they can welcome as friends on this solemn and auspicious occasion their former enemies. As long as that lofty column points to heaven, as long as one stone of its foundation remains, future generations of Americans should look upon it with pride. Future generations of Americans should look upon it with pride, not only as an honor to those who conceived its construction, but as a silent, though noble emblem of a restored union and a reunited people. That is the spirit of these monuments. Now, that's my words, that last part. Not what people, is, this is what Hampton is saying. It's an it's a, it's a emblem of a restored union and a reunited people. In the name of my comrades, dead and living, and in my own name, I give grateful thanks to the brave men of Chicago, who have done honor to our dead here, not as Confederate soldiers, but as brave men who preferred imprisonment and death rather than freedom obtained by a dishonorable sacrifice of the principles for which they were willing to die. Of the 6,000 Confederates buried here, not one was an officer. All were privates, in no way responsible for the unhappy war which brought an Iliad of woes upon our country. And yet these humble private soldiers, any one of whom could have could have gained freedom by taking the oath of allegiance to the federal government, preferred death to the sacrifice of their principles. Can any possible dishonor attach to the brave men of Chicago because they are willing to recognize the courage and the devotion to duty of these dead Confederates? Imagine if you can, my friends, the despair, the horror of these poor privates lingering in prison and dying for their faith. They died here in what they looked upon as a foreign and hostile land, far from the land of their birth, with no tender hand of mother or wife to soothe their entrance into the dark valley of the shadow of death, and with all the memories of their far-off homes and loving kindred to add the sharpest pangs to death itself. They were true men, and say if you please that they were mistaken, that they were wrong. No brave man on earth can fail to do honor to their courage and their steadfast adherence to what they conceive to be their duty. Think about what he just said. I mean, that's powerful. That is moving. These men dying. They were brave men. You can say they're wrong. You can say they're wrong, but you cannot deny their courage. You, the brave citizens of Chicago, in doing honor to their memory, honor yourselves and humanity. Nor will you blame us of the South while appreciating gratefully your generous action in behalf of our dead comrades, for cherishing with pride and reverence their memory. You could not respect us were we to feel otherwise. Think about what he just said. Nor will you blame us of the South while appreciating gratefully your generous action on behalf of our dead comrades for cherishing with pride and reverence their memory. You could not respect us were we to feel otherwise. This applies to Southerners today. Why would you respect someone who would spit on their ancestors? You shouldn't. You shouldn't respect those people. People that do that are not worthy of respect. 
Death places its seal on the actions of men, and it is death after death that we measure men. It's after death that we measure men and how they respond to it, how they react to it. He continues, Are any federal soldiers disloyal to the flag under which they fought because they join in decorating the graves of brave men whom they met in battle? It's a good question. Is anyone today disloyal to America because they decorate the graves of brave men who they met in battle? Thousands of federal soldiers rest under southern skies and southern graves, many an unknown graves. And when on Memorial Day, in the South, the graves of our dead are decorated, gray-headed Confederate veterans and noble, devoted women strew flowers over the graves of federal soldiers. If the humane, generous action of the people of this city in doing honor to the memory of their old antagonists is denounced as desecration, it would seem to follow that the decoration of federal graves by rebel hands should be open to the same criticism. But no denunciation of Southern people for daring to honor the memory of men who were once their enemies has met my eyes. Such narrow and bigoted feelings as would prompt a discordant note on occasions of this sort are rarely found among true men and brave soldiers. True men and brave soldiers. And I have often thought that the two great captains who were engaged in that death grapple in Virginia have been left to settle the terms of peace, each supported by his faithful followers. The country would have had a peace indeed, one honorable alike to victors and vanquished, and which would have prevented the evils brought about by the politicians. As it is, the South recognizes and honors the magnanimity of General Grant toward our great Chief General Lee, and deplores as an unmitigated misfortune the assassination of Lincoln. I repeat emphatically that the untimely death of President Lincoln was regarded by all thoughtful men of the South as one of the most serious evils which had befallen our section, and I venture to say that many that my Southern associates here present will sustain my assertion. We know that during the war he devoted every energy of mind and body for the restoration of the Union, and that result accomplished, we felt that his big brain and his kind heart would prompt him to deal kindly and leniently to his fellow citizens of the South, for his highest, if not his sole aim, was to see the Union restored. And it was a cruel hope that deprived him of what he had hoped would be the reward of his labors, and the South of one who would have been her strongest protector and her sorest hour of need. So, I mean, here, where is the where is the seething hatred for Abraham Lincoln here? He says the guy was killed. That was terrible. And we would have welcomed a union restored under good terms if Grant and Lee had been able to figure this out. Where is the hatred for Grant? Where is the hatred for, for Lincoln? I mean, this is coming from Wade Hampton. Uh, he continues later on. Every Southern man felt that a call made by him by his state was an imperative command and that his duty was to obey without hesitation and at all hazards. When the North called in its citizens to rally around to the old flag, they too responded with to the summons from a sense of duty, as did the people of the South to the call made on them. State allegiance and state pride in each case was the moving cause which arrayed millions of men in arms in this country. And while the war was brought them while the war that brought them out caused untold misery to the country, it has taught a lesson to the nations of the earth that America and arms can defy the world. It seems to me, too, that it should incalculate another lesson to us, and that is that the time has come 
when the actors in this fearful war and those whom they respect should judge their former opponents as they would judge themselves. This can be done without the sacrifice of principle on either side, as the example of our mother country has shown us. York and Lancaster, Cavalier and Roundhead, no longer wage war on each other. All are English, Englishmen, proud of their country, and the red rose and the white are emblems of peace and the glory of old England. Can we not all be proud of the prowess of the American soldier? The American soldier. I do not envy the feelings of the man who, looking upon this scene today and estimating its importance, could denounce its, obser its observance or undervalue its significance. It inaugurates a new era, a new departure, and he who would denounce its fraternal spirit is no patriot. Think about what he just said. He who would denounce its fraternal spirit is no patriot. He who would denounce Confederate monuments is no patriot. The sentiments I express here are not new. Only a short time since, I had an occasion to address my fellow citizens of Charleston, South Carolina, the cradle of secession, and I then used the following language, which he actually uh, gives a poem, which I'm not going to read. Let me not be understood as speaking to, re to reawaken sexual animosity, now happily dying out, nor as counseling one act of disloyalty to the restored union. I recognize, as every true Confederate soldier does, the supremacy of the Constitution, the integrity of the Union, and all the obligations we assume when our arms were laid down. We of the South are now an, in are now an integral part of the great republic. Its flag waves unchallenged from the rock-ribbed coasts of Maine to the Golden Gate of far-off Alaska, from the snow-capped mountains of the North to the orange groves of Florida. And it is the duty of every patriot to make that country the fit abode for freedmen for all time to come. But I appeal earnestly and reverently for justice to my Confederate comrades, dead and living. They discharged their duty as they saw it, bravely and nobly, and God alone can judge whether they were right or wrong. And he wraps up by saying this, The action taken by the people of this Queen City of the Northwest in erecting a monument to men who in years gone by were opposed to them has no parallel in the history of the world, and I am sure that it will intend more than anything has yet done to do away with the animosities of the past and to restore those fraternal relations which should exist between the citizens of a common country. We of the South thank you for your untainted hospitality, for the kindness extended to us, and above all, for the noble, magnanimous spirit you have shown in rising above sectional feelings and setting an example to the whole country of brotherly love, of a sincere desire to bring about a more perfect union and to make the citizens of this great republic all work in union to promote its welfare and uphold its honor. Let it be hereafter the hope of all of us that our state shall be distant as the bellows, but one as the sea. Now, where is the seething hatred? Where is the white supremacy in that particular speech? It's all about reconciliation, a patriotic duty of saying you can't respect us unless we respect our ancestors. And you, as patriots, the only people that would, that would spit on these monuments, they're not patriots. They're sniveling cowards. So the people of Chicago are showing their true manliness, their true humanity, by showing that they're going to respect the dead who are buried here. But this is not just what Wade Hampton... I mean, you could say, well, that's just a southerner trying to promote his own side. What about northerners? Well, let me show you. The Reverend Bishop Samuel Fallows from Wisconsin said this, a wonderful speech, and I'm going to read this one. It's a little shorter, but I want to read this because 
This is a northerner. He served in the Union Army. He was a, he was a minister in the Union Army, a minister following the war. And this is what he had to say, a man of the cloth. Quote, our Union soldier dead cannot receive their meed of praise without the fullest recognition and the most qualified, unqualified admiration for the magnificent bravery of their Confederate opponents. You can't say these men were brave unless you can say the Confederate soldiers were brave. Virtue is measured by the temptations it meets and masters. Success is scored according to the difficulties to be surmounted. Victory has its value precisely proportioned to the means and measures and magnitudes and men that enter into the struggle. In the greatest of wars, West Point met West Point. Volunteer fought against volunteer. The bravest and the best of our northern hearts and homes slept the soldiers' last long sleep with the bravest and the best of our southern hearts and homes. Sincerity strove against sincerity. Conviction confronted conviction. Determination defied determination. Sacrifice set itself over against sacrifice. Prayer plumbed its petitions against prayer. Not men of alien lineage were those who so heroically opposed us, and their veins flowed the purest of American blood. Confederate soldiers were the purest of American blood. The toughness of its iron was tested in the winning by their fathers for the American people of our imperial northwestern and southwestern domain from savage and civilized foe. Beneath the stars and stripes, they conquered the armies of England and outwitted the diplomacy of France and Spain. And now today, thank God, we are all Americans. We are brothers again and forever. The God of nations himself has set upon our country and the issues of the conflict the seal of an unbroken oneness and of an undisputable supremacy. The raising of this noble shaft to commemorate the gallant Confederate dead in this northern city on this historic occasion attests this glorious truth. Yep, it's all for white supremacy. The monument of the Union soldier is our country, our whole country. But grand though as it is, it is an unfinished monument. The North cannot build it alone. Neither can the East nor the West. The North and the South, the East and the West, must join in the blessed work. Every opening of industry, every development of commerce, every act of justice, every advance in liberty, every sentiment of peace, every note of conciliation, every hand grasp of reconciliation, every heart throb of love, add to its stability and glory. Today, the red-letter day of this new era, with the eyes of the whole nation upon us, we strew the flowers, the richest and the rarest, the generous South and token of her full accord can furnish over the graves of the northern dead and the southern dead, nay, from this time forth and forevermore, are dead. Are dead. A Union veteran, a reverend saying that Southerners are are dead. And above us and about us, I do believe it, is gathered the great cloud of witness, the mustered-out armies that once met in battle shock, men who were faithful unto death and have received the crown of life, but one army now, the real, the immortal Grand Army of the Republic. Sheridan and Jackson, Sherman and Johnston, Grant and Lee are there, are here with that invisible, indivisible, approving, protected host. And with the benediction of our common father and the Prince of Peace and our, our elder brother, we repeat the words that come from a southern woman's lips and loving, loyal heart. Together cry the people, and together still shall be an everlasting charter bound forever for the free. Of liberty, the signet seal, the one eternal sign, be these united emblems, the palmetto and the pine. 
So I read these today in this particular episode of the Brian McClanahan Show to show you the real spirit of reconciliation, to show you that this Chicago monument, erected in 1895 at the heart of quote-unquote Jim Crow, was erected for the same reason every other monument in the South or the North was erected in this particular time period, to honor Confederate dead. No other motivation was used for it. Certainly these people were had uh, views that would be opposite of 21st century American on a variety of issues, but they were doing these things to honor dead, whether they were building these monuments in a city square or whether they're building these monuments in a cemetery. All was the same. All was the same. It was to honor the men who fell. To honor the men who fell. I'll see you next time on The Brian McClanahan.